you may go downstairs. Welcome everyone, thank you band. Thank you. All right. It's great to see so many children and youth go downstairs. I tell you, they need the truth. Amen? Amen. 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 And, and there's so much darkness and, and, and lies that they're trying to be fed to our children in the schools, everywhere. Everywhere. On TV, it's incredible. But, but, the truth of God will plant seeds that can never, ever be taken away. So many people I have spoken to, youth and children, children that, you know, my wife taught in Sunday school that today are old and, and married, and the seeds that were planted, they don't go away. Some may come back when they're, you know, youth. Some may never fall away, but the seeds, and, and, and it was my... It was my father-in-law who taught me this. You know, he was, he was a Korean man, South Korea. Christianity wasn't big then. And a missionary came to town. And he got invited to go to a Sunday school class. And the one story that hit him like a ton of bricks was the story of Noah and the rainbow and how God chose to save people despite the cruelty and evil that was in the land. And you see, that resonated with them because they had been invaded by the Japanese and under the Japanese and their entire country had been devastated. And that spoke to him so much. And even though he was surrounded by Confucius and Buddhist teachings and even suppression from his own family, those seeds planted came fruit. And now his entire family serves the Lord. Amen. So when you see them go downstairs, just pray that seeds would be planted that would germinate one day. Amen? Amen. Well, let us get into the word. That is not part of the word. That was just something I felt so strongly when I saw them go down. But Proverbs, let's start with Proverbs. Proverbs 27.7. 27.7. One who is full... Loathes honey. Uh, you might be thinking, how can anybody loathe honey? It's nice and sweet. One who is full, full, loathes honey. But to the one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Isn't that an interesting proverb? I mean, if you're full, you can't eat anymore. You're, I don't even want honey. I don't even want dessert. That sort of happened to me yesterday. It, my wife, you know, it was uh, my daughter's birthday this week, and so... You know, she's working and, and uh, becoming a nurse, and so she couldn't celebrate her birthday, which is on Valentine's Day. So my daughter's birthday is on Valentine's Day, and so we decided to celebrate yesterday. And she didn't want to go out. She goes, she wants my wife to make her bake pasta with lots of meat sauce, okay? And when I took that meat sauce out of the oven, it was heavy, really heavy. So I don't know how many pounds of meat Helen put in there, but she must have put a lot of pounds of meat. And then after I finished, I was full. And this was at lunch. And then at dinner, she's going, do you want any food? And I go, no, I don't, I don't want anything. 
I, I'm filled for the day. And so I sort, of, I sort of saw this and I said, well, I guess I can understand a little bit. If you've eaten that much, you know, you won't even want dessert. But if you're hungry, really, really hungry, and I'm not just talking about the hungry when your stomach starts to stir and you go and reach into something in the fridge. When you're hungry and you've had time to eat, and maybe you've skipped a meal, maybe two meals, and all that you had is water, and you get really, really hungry. When something finally is put before you, it tastes good. Right? That's what I think he's talking about. This is really what I think he's talking about. And talking about hunger, you know, we, we are experiencing something in the world today. You know, we've always had famines and hunger, but in Canada, it's, it's getting close to the doorstep. I know that in terms of world hunger, Canada only has about less than 2% of people who really reach that poverty level that, you know, like from a world hunger perspective that we see. It's very small because we have a lot of support. But here's the thing. There are so many people on the cusp in Canada now. And we, they starting to call it, what is it called? Food insecurity. Which means that people aren't getting the right food every day. You know, three square meals, the right nutrition. And that is increasing. I think right now the figure is above 18%. So that means that there are a bunch of people in Canada, almost one in five Canadians, are at that point, tipping point, where they're not going to have enough food for the day, and it tips them into the point where they're actually experiencing poverty, the kind of hunger that poverty brings in. That's, it's been decades since we as a country have been in that spot. We're not in a very good spot. And so there are a lot of people out there, food banks, two million people now depend on food banks in Canada. Two million. And you know what? A third of them are children. A third. And that's why they had to start these food programs in schools, because kids would come to school without eating. And what happens when a kid can't come to school? They can't think, they can't perform. These are all very, very new developments in our, in our culture and our society. And you know what the largest growing group, disenfranchised group? Seniors of the food bank users and the people actually getting into food insecurity is seniors. The fastest growing segment. Why? Because inflation is going this way, and what's happening to their pensions? It's staying this way. And so we have a lot of vulnerable people in our society that are experiencing hunger. And, and I pray, and I'm, I'm praying, that we'll be able to, as a church, do something about it in the near future. And we started to do small things, but I... I'm really praying that we can do some big things in the church and really start to reach people with God's love. And I tell you, this is not a bait and switch. And, and this is one thing that I learned when I was downtown. And, you know, when you want to bless people, don't make it conditional. Please don't. When you want to bless somebody, bless them. Don't make it conditional. I spent many years downtown at, in a street ministry, and sometimes people would criticize us because other churches would come and they say, why don't you do the service first, make everybody sit through service, and then feed them? At least they'll hear the word of God. Well, I grew up Catholic. 
And that was the argument that the Catholics had. Make everybody go to church and at least they'll hear the word of God. But is that genuine? No. You know what people felt like when you did that? I paid my due and my time. You wasted an hour of my time, don't give me my food. But when you fed them and you loved them and they left, even before service started, and they kept coming back and you still fed them, and they came back and you still clothed them and you loved them, it might have taken a year or two years, but you know what I started seeing? I started seeing some of them that kept coming back actually staying for a song or two during worship. And then they would start doing that for a few months, and then they would start staying through the full worship. But it's because they wanted to. You know? And then they would hear the word. And the people who would be transformed because they wanted to, because they were hungry, not because they had to, because by coming and seeing the love and joy of the people who loved them, they became hungry for that. They wanted some of that. They wanted some of that. And so this, this analogy of hunger, because they were hungry, but they, they came in physically hungry. But they didn't realize they were spiritually hungry until they started seeing something in the people that were there engaging with them and serving them. And, you know, the, all the things that you would see in people who go hungry on the street and you might say well they don't have no they don't have to go hungry but a lot of them are addicted and so instead of spending money on food they'll spend money on junk but they still need help and God's love to get them off that junk and you could tell like their appearance would be they would get gaunt you can tell when they weren't eating properly and they were really hungry and they'd come in you know, some would ask for seconds and thirds. <laughs> you could tell them they would get weaker and weaker as time went on. Their stamina was going. And there's one thing that, and I was reading, I go, what happens when you get so hungry that you don't have enough food for whatever reason it is? They say that even mentally you start to dream about it all the time. Subconsciously you start to want it so much that even in conversations it becomes something that you want all the time. People talk more about food the more they're starved of food. So when there's a lack of something that you absolutely need, there is a desire and a hunger that comes. But sometimes they don't even reel it. But I tell you, there's something that's happening in, in Canada and it's getting worse and worse, which is far worse than the physical hunger and I saw it on the streets of Toronto, is the spiritual hunger. People in Canada are starting to become less and less knowledgeable about God. God is a disappearing factor in people's lives. And we see it all around us. And so I ask you today, we as a church, and I'm not talking about us here, but you can include us here and, and, and churches across Canada. Have we done enough? Do you think we've done enough? Have we done enough to reach the lost? Have we done enough to equip the saints? When I see churches abandoning the word of God and teaching stuff that I just could never have foreseen 20, 30 years ago being taught from pulpits today, it just shocks me. 
And so there is, I believe, a spiritual hunger that is happening in, in Canada today. And it's just not in our society. It's in our churches. In our churches. People lack the Word of God. People lack the understanding of the Word of God. People don't have the Holy Spirit in their lives. And it's telling. You know, only one-third of Canadians actually pray. Once or twice a month. Not even daily. One in three. Just once a month, right? One in three. Well, at least half of them have Bibles, so they did a survey, they asked them, do you have a Bible? Half of them said, yeah. We have a Bible in the house. But guess what? It's gathering dust. They don't actually read it. And those that read it, they've missed out on the understanding because without the Spirit of God, can you really understand what the Bible has to say? So they start asking people questions. Oh, you have a Bible in the home. Well, what do you get out of it? Well, half of them said, when I read it, I guess I get a guidance for life, you know, what to do in life and how to live life. Only 40% really experience God when they read the Bible. Like, wow. If only 40%, that means 60% are just reading it like a book, any book that you get off the shelf. Only a third, when they read it, discover God's will. Only a third. And only a third get any meaning out of it. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. We have a spiritual family, famine in this country. I really do. Now, the good news, there is a little bit of good news. There is a little bit of good news. Amongst evangelicals, 86% at least pray. At least the evangelical church, Pentecostals, Nazarenes, people who believe in the word of God and Christ. And the good thing about, this is actually a positive thing. Some people might think it's not a positive thing, but I think it's a positive thing. Christian churches, and I'm talking about Christian churches, spirit-filled churches. Now, not everybody in the church, but at least where the church, where the spirit is present, where the word of God is taught We've remained consistently at least 10% of the Canadian population for the last three to five decades. And you might say, well, is that enough? We're the only church. Can you believe that? All other Christian denominations have shrunk in Canada. Only Christian churches have actually maintained a presence consistently. And we might, that, that's a good statistic for many people. But I don't think that's a good statistic. Because that means 90% of people don't know God. 90% of people aren't reached in Canada. And when 86% of evangelicals pray, that's only about once a month. I want 86% of evangelicals to pray every day. Every day. Not once a month. And so I really think there's something lacking. Something lacking in our society. And I want to take us back to 
what we've been covering. I've been covering the journey that Jesus has had in Luke. Remember that? In 951, when it was time for him to be raised up, it said that he turned his face towards Jerusalem, the determination. And we've been tracking, I've been tracking with you that journey, the final journey that Jesus had on his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus had a hunger, a hunger to do the will of God, a hunger to accomplish what he had come for. He knew exactly where he needed to go and how to, how to do it. And his desire was to get it accomplished. And he would not rest until it was accomplished. And so you see Jesus starting that journey down to Jerusalem. And at the beginning, remember, we looked at when Jesus turned, he'd spent three years in Galilee and he turned to go down. We looked at the people in the church, the disciples, the people around them. The towns rejected him, right? The disciples had no idea of his teachings. We saw in the early stories that Luke put together how the disciples didn't get it. The people around them didn't get it after three years. And so Jesus knew that now was the time to turn towards Jerusalem. And he did. But here's something amazing. After, after we read how the disciples didn't get it wrong, he actually sent out the 72. Remember that? And what did he do? He sent them out two by two. And it's interesting because this past Wednesday we, we actually heard one of the prayer lessons that Pastor Terry had given us is about how when two gather together, the authority of God is there. And as these went out two by two, Jesus gave very specific instructions. Remember, you go into a town, you stay in the first house, and when they came back, what did they come back? They came back full of joy because they had cast out demons. All the authority that Jesus had, he gave them. There is an authority that comes when we gather together and we hunger for him and his word and his power in our life. And they went out two by two and wonderful things happened. And so here is Jesus on his road. He's sent out the two by two. They've come back. He's gone through the villages. And I'll let you read that part, Luke. Look, all the stories. And we're at the end now. He's now gone through all the way down and he's just about to approach Jerusalem and he's going through Jericho. And as he's approaching Jericho, two very interesting things happen. Two very interesting encounters happen. And Jesus is there to meet with these people. And here, Jesus is entering Jericho. And it takes us back to when the Jewish people enter Jericho. Now let's take, let's take a, a moment and step back in time. Joshua, which is actually Jesus' name, by the way, because Jesus is the Greek name for Joshua. But it's interesting, eh? Joshua is leading the people to cross the river, enter, enter Jericho. Who wasn't allowed to enter? Remember the ten spies? 
12 went out, 2 came back, had faith, and 10 didn't. And so the Lord said, well, then you're going to roam the desert. And he says it. And he says, only the two that survive will be allowed to enter. And so they roamed the desert for decades. And he said, only what shall go in? The two spies and who else? Does anybody remember? Hmm? Did somebody say the kids, the children? Anybody say that? Yeah, the children. The children were allowed Even those that were alive during that time, the children were allowed to to enter in. God did not account the sin of the people to the children. He did not. And that's an important point for us to, to understand because the children grew up understanding why they were roaming the desert. The children grew up understanding why God had to institute that punishment. And so here they came to Jericho. They were tired of roaming the desert for 40 years. But think of what the desert did to them. It probably strengthened them. It taught them determination, persistence. When they were ready to cross the Jericho, they weren't doubting. And they knew they had to follow God's instruction. And so for the first town they went to, Jericho with these high and mighty walls. The army, do you think it was a professional army like the uh, Egyptians had with chariots and, and spears? I could just see some of them might have had swords. Most of them didn't. Probably just farm tools. And here they are. Okay, you're going to go after this city and look how big the walls are and you're going to conquer this city. Well, after 40 years, they were certainly hungry for the promised land. And so when God said, you're going to go march around for six days and then blow the trumpets with the ark on your shoulders. And can you imagine the people in Jericho seeing this? Probably laughed and mocked them. But on the seventh day, the walls came down. And the people of God entered the promised land. That barrier was taken down. Now here's Jesus. Now, with his face set upon Jerusalem, you see, he wants to give us a promised land that isn't about physical land. He wants to give us a promised land that is to come. He wants to give us a promised land that can live in our hearts. And he's going through Jericho because he is using that as a symbol. I am going to give you the real promised land. We're going to go through Jericho and we're going to break some walls. And Jesus is in there. And he's basically John 6, 27. John 6, 27. I want that, when I was seeing this, said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. See, Jesus was bringing something far better than the physical manna that the people had to eat. He was ready to bring them a spiritual manna that would never end. And as he was entering Jericho, that's exactly what he wanted to do. And we see two stories that I really want to dig in with you, two stories. 
And I think that these stories actually exhibit one of the Beatitudes. Didn't, didn't Jesus teach us that blessed are those who are hungry and thirst? Eh? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst for God? Do you hunger and thirst daily to pray because you feel the need, the hunger pains, the deficit in our lives? Are we hungry? And here's the perfect example is Jesus is approaching and then in chapter 18, as he enters Jericho, there's a blind man. There's a blind man. And we see this in 1834. It says, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside. A blind man. So you can see that the crowds probably had been gathering around Jesus and they were all excited. And all of a sudden, they're just following him. And there was, there was this beggar by the roadside. And can you imagine? He's just sitting there, normal day, every day he's there, every single day. Every single day he's there begging. But today is a special day. There's a crowd. There's a crowd of people. He's hearing all this commotion. And so as he hears this commotion, he goes, what's going on? What's happening? What does the crowd say? What does the crowd say in this verse? In 37, what does it say? The crowd says, Jesus of Nazareth is here. Right? Jesus of Nazareth is here. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Did this beggar even know who Jesus was? He's blind. He can't move around. All he can do is wait for people to come to him and tell him about Jesus. But listen how he responds. Listen to this. He cries out, Jesus, son of David. Do you see that? The crowd called him Jesus of Nazareth. The beggar called him Jesus, son of David. This beggar couldn't walk with Jesus. This beggar didn't spend years with Jesus. But this beggar knew Jesus more than the entire crowd. Son of David is a prophetic name given to Jesus. You would only call him if you believed he was the Messiah and deliverer. And here's the beggar calling out and saying, hey, this isn't just Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus, son of David. This is different. And so the, the crowd start to rebuke him. Quiet down. And he's going, no, I'm going to cry louder. No way. This is Jesus, son of David. This isn't no regular prophet that is here. He was hungry. We sometimes don't want the desert. We sometimes don't want the blindness. And maybe sometimes we get comfortable with the desert and comfortable with the blindness. And that's when you lose the hunger. But when you're not comfortable with the blindness in the desert, when you're not comfortable and you're hungry for something more. Nothing can quiet you. No crowd. Nothing can stop you. Nothing. 
It says here that he cried out the more. In Mark, that tells the same story but provides some extra details, it says that he threw off his cloak. Like everybody's telling him, shut up. Quiet down. Let Jesus do it. He goes, no, I want to seize the son of David. Throws off his cloak, blind, probably going, son of David. Can you imagine him just going through that crowd, yelling, and people getting upset with him? Like, this isn't like a big, wide area like, uh, you know, Dundas Street Square downtown. These are narrow roads. He's probably bumping into people, pushing people around. And so did Jesus. So Jesus hears him. See that? Jesus hears him. Remember the scripture we read during our Bible study on Wednesday? God hears you. Whatever you ask for will be done. If it is in his will and God hears you. Right? First John. We also learn through our prayer that if anything we ask in Jesus' name glorifies God, it will be done. So let's see what happens. So Jesus stopped. He heard him. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And the beggar says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Let me recover my sight. What was Jesus' response? Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Where did his faith begin? When he spoke out? Did his faith actually speak when he spoke out and said, Jesus, heal me? Was that when his faith started? No. His faith started while he was blind. His faith started when he recognized who Jesus was. And he, had, he knew who Jesus was, but he was still blind. I don't know when. The Bible doesn't tell us how long he knew who Jesus was. What we do know is that the crowd called him Jesus of Nazareth, and he called him Son of David. That's when his faith started. Not when he asked to be healed. You see, he believed in who Jesus was as the Messiah. He believed in Jesus' power, and he believed it because he had heard it, and something stirred up inside of him. That's when his faith started. So by the time that Jesus arrived, when Jesus showed up, his heart was already ready. His heart was already ready. Because he had a hunger. And God wants to give us good things. He does. But do we have a hunger for God? Not a hunger for miracles. Do we have a hunger to see people saved. Not a hunger for signs and wonders. Do we have a hunger to see Jesus proclaimed throughout the land? Not a hunger for numbers. You see, when our hunger is in the right place, that is where faith starts. And the blind man knew it. And so Jesus granted him his wish. And this is what happened. 
And he followed him and glorified God, it says. And the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. You see, when Jesus, you know that when Jesus heals you and you ask for something in Jesus' name, Scripture tells us that it brings glory to God. And that's exactly what happened here in this healing. People praised and gave glory to God. He had to have faith first. That faith must have germinated and grown in him and gave him confidence and courage. And then he was ready to call out to Christ. And Jesus heard and responded. Do you see that pattern? But it didn't stop there. So Jesus kept going. And Luke gave us one more story. One more story. You see, then Jesus went. And as he entered Jericho, so this is him coming to Jericho. Now he entered Jericho. Now this isn't the Jericho of the walls, okay? So this, the Jericho of the walls was in ruins and there was a curse upon it by Joshua. And so what Herod did is he built a new Jericho. And this new Jericho is like, I don't know, it's, it's like a suburb, but it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful place. They call it City of Palms. It was a suburb of Jerusalem. You know, if you had a cottage, you'd have a cottage in Jericho. You know, you had water there. There was lots of food. It was comfortable. And so Herod had his palace there. So when he wanted to retreat somewhere comfortable, he retreated to the new Jericho. And so Jesus is going in, and guess who he meets? You guys know the story. Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was there. He was the chief tax collector. Now you got to understand, he was the chief tax collector. That means that all the other tax collectors reported to him. Okay? So he was the chief. First thing that we know. Secondly, everybody always goes to the fact that he was short and climbed the tree, but you got to understand who this guy was first. Okay? He was the chief tax collector in a wealthy city. Wealthy city. Third, Jericho was the entranceway into Jerusalem. If you were going to trade and get into Jerusalem, you went through Jericho. When I was in Israel, we actually went and saw, I can't remember the, the city, but there was a, a Roman city outside of Jericho where the Romans built this city and it was to control traffic coming in from the northern kingdoms to the southern kingdom so that they could collect taxes. And they had, they had designed the Roman city. When I was in Rome, I saw the layout of Rome, how they designed it with the main street and how they had everything laid out. And in this Roman city in southern Israel, just outside of Jericho, it had the same layout, exact same layout, architecturally, the main street, how everything was designed, and so the Romans, right outside Jericho, were controlling those pathways. It was a pathway from the north to the south, from the northern kingdoms to Egypt and the southern kingdoms. And if you had to go to Jerusalem, you had to go through Jericho. 
So Zacchaeus, being the chief of that area and all those taxes were being collected, he was no poor guy. He was probably the Trump of Jericho. I guarantee you, he had a lot of money. A lot of money. But tax collectors were hated by the Jews. The Romans loved them, probably. Well, I'm sure the Romans loved him. But the Jewish people hated him. Absolutely hated him. But if the blind man can get hungry, can Zacchaeus get hungry? Can someone like Zacchaeus be hungry for God? It says that Zacchaeus was short. And so what did he do? What did he do? He climbed a tree. He must have known something. He must have heard about something. And Zacchaeus probably wasn't the type of guy that would go to synagogue because he probably would be stoned if he walked, stepped into the synagogue. So he was rich. He wasn't exposed to church every week. He didn't hear the word of God every week. But somehow, he had heard about Jesus. And when Jesus came, the hunger for who Jesus was, the hunger that he could not understand, overtook him. You got to understand, it must have looked kind of weird for this little rich guy who probably has a small army of Romans with him all the time to make sure that the taxes are protected, climbs this tree just to take a look at Jesus coming by. Like even the leaders must have looked up and said, what's he doing? Can you imagine Donald Trump running up a tree? (laughs) Bill Gates, choose one of those, you know, Elon Musk running up a tree just to get a glance of Jesus. You just wouldn't fathom it. You, you would think that they would, you know, take, ask the soldiers to, to move people out of the way. Why didn't he do that? Why do you think that he didn't do that? Maybe he thought, everybody hates me. If I show up, what are they going to say? Is Jesus going to accept me? Maybe he thought, yeah, I can get the Roman soldiers to move people out of the way. I have enough money. I have enough presence and power. But is Jesus going to reject me? The desire and hunger was there, but also the doubt. But here's the beautiful thing. The beggar was hungry for Jesus and cried out to him, But even when we are in our lowest point in life, when we're struggling and we don't feel like calling out to Jesus, and we're ashamed, just like Zacchaeus, Jesus calls out to us. Jesus reaches out to us. He never leaves you. He will never forsake you. He will always be with you. And this is exactly what happened. 
You see, he climbed a sycamore tree. The sycamore tree was sort of like, that it bared fruit, but it was fruit for the poor. And it's kind of symbolic that he climbed this tree. And Jesus called him. He said, come down. And what does the Bible say? He hurried. Not only did he run to go and see who Jesus was, but when he climbed up on the tree and Jesus came by, he didn't climb down the tree. He stood there and wondered, wow, this is Jesus. He probably wondered, is Jesus, does Jesus even notice who I am? And Jesus knew him, called out to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down. He said, he hurried down. Can you imagine Jesus? All the stories of Jesus, this Jesus who had been teaching about sin, healing. Could he be the Messiah? Can you imagine what was going through Zacchaeus' heart and mind? He called me. And then it said, I must stay at your house today. And we know that this was a big issue because the, the verse right after 6, it says he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And then when they saw it, they all grumbled. Who grumbled? All the religious people. Jesus, you're going to go into this chief tax collector's house? Like this guy's a primo number one sinner here. You know? Like, how dare you? Like, even stepping one millimeter into his doorstep, you're already defiled. Do you know how many people he's hurt? How many people he's robbed? How dare you even consider saving this guy? Why would you eat when you can't be the Messiah? Associate with someone like that? And so they went in. The Bible doesn't tell us all the details of what happened in Luke. It just, we just know that they went into Zacchaeus' house. The people grumbled that he was in there. But whatever the discussion was, whatever was said, there was fruit. There was fruit. And this is what it says. In verse 8 of chapter 19. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. Now you've got to understand, they were all sitting on the ground. So whatever was said, whatever Jesus taught, whatever he blessed them with, he stood. And you see, when you stand and everybody stand, is sitting down, you're there to make a significant announcement. And so Zacchaeus said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded any, I restore it fourfold. I restore it fourfold. And what did Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house. And Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 
Remember when Jesus sent out the 72 and they came back and said, look at all the miracles we performed. And he says, don't rejoice over that. What did he say to rejoice over? That your names are written in the book of life. This is why Jesus came. He said, I am the bread of life in John. This is the bread that he wants to give us. This is what we need to hunger for. We need to hunger for what he hungers. We need to hunger for what he hungers. One last thing. Band, if you could come up. One last thing. You see, we've been following Luke, right? And we've been following him, and we've been... And we're now at Jericho just before Jesus is ready to enter Jerusalem. But you know that when the gospel writers write all these little stories down, they're actually putting them together in a composition on purpose. And so, I want to take us back to chapter 18 before Jesus actually starts talking to the blind man. And let's see what Luke puts there. Verses 9 to 14. What story is that? That is the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee at the front of the church saying, Oh God, I'm so glad you've made me the way I am. And what's the tax collector doing at the back? Beating his heart. So then Luke says, Okay, next He's going to talk about the little children. The little children wanted to come to Jesus. And the disciples say, no, no, he rebuked them. Stay back. And Jesus said, no, let the little children come to me. Right? Verse 17. Whoever does not receive them. Right? The faith of a child. And then right after that, what does Luke give us? The rich ruler, right? Not willing to give away anything. And the the disciples are going, well, who can be saved? And Jesus says, anything is possible with God. And then Luke gives us Jesus' third proclamation. That the Son of Man, in 31 to 34, will be killed. You know what it says? That the disciples, they couldn't grasp what he was talking about. Now, if we took all of these, what do we learn from each one? The first one is that God is looking for the humble people who recognize their sin, who are not prideful enough to not realize that we are all sinners, that we need not only to be humble, but we need childlike faith when we approach God. Jesus is looking for us to be like little children as we approach Jesus. And that nothing is impossible with God. And it doesn't matter how things will get done. Do you trust that Jesus will get things done? You don't have to grasp what he's doing. You don't have to grasp how he's going to do it. You don't have to worry how he will accomplish it. He will get it accomplished. And you might have no idea So here's Luke telling us, 
Be humble. Like the tax collector. Be like children. Seek Jesus like children. Innocent, pure, without question. Don't worry about how things are going to get done because all things are possible with Christ. You see how Luke is actually preparing us? And then Luke gives us the story of the blind man. And the story of Zacchaeus. Now tell me, doesn't Zacchaeus fit all of those points? He was humble. He recognized he was a sinner. And like a child, he climbed the tree. And he didn't understand how he could get to Jesus or whether Jesus would even pay attention to him. But Jesus called him. He didn't worry about the how. And Jesus needs to take off the blinders for us to see. Remember what Jesus came for and how we need to approach God. Isn't it interesting he chose the chief tax collector in one of the most richest neighborhoods of the time? The most hated person he chose to save? Let us stand.